Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. When I was a kid, uh, I, was a, I was a great goalkeeper. Um, and when I mean great, I mean <coughs> great. Um, I, I've never liked, you know, when I went to the, to the gym this week, you know, she made me fill out a form and she said, what exercises do you like and what exercises don't you like? And then the don't you like part, I said, anything cardio. I, I can't, I don't like running. I've never loved running. I've never liked anything along those lines. And so as a kid, the one thing my dad could get me into was being a goalkeeper. Why? Because I just sat on the line there, basically. And just had little bursts of sprints every once in a while. Um, but the one time, and, and, and I don't remember this incident, so I've got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm recollecting what my dad had told pretty much half the world about. But there was one time where a punch bowl over, which is a suburb in southwest Sydney, I must have been about 14 or 15 at the time, and uh, for those of you who don't understand football, just bear with me. Um, it's the end, that's the funny part. But um, there was a foul outside of the, the box. And uh, as the goalkeeper, I'm setting up a wall of people to, you know, to block the shot that this guy is going to take a free kick on. And so I placed myself on the line. And you know, in, in, in soccer, you can actually f- curve the ball around a wall, for those of you who know football. And so the guy goes and kicks the ball and it curves around. And as a goalkeeper, I could see it coming. And again, I'm just recollecting what Dad told me because I don't remember a thing of what happened here. But apparently I dove through the air, caught the ball, and then as I caught the ball, the post went straight there. And he said it was the funniest thing that I was perpendicular to the post at some point where I was just like that and then fell down, broke my nose, passed out completely, but I held the ball. Dad said he had to pry it from my hands. <laughs> they all ran on, and, and half of them were trying not to laugh, you know, but they're all worried because there was blood everywhere, and, you know, I was taken to the hospital, broken nose, the whole thing. Um, but I, I was pretty proud of my goalkeeping. Uh, later on, about a, a couple of years later, I was playing uh, at state level, and we're in the semi final. I was playing for a team called Marrickville Olympic. We're playing against Five Dock. And um, I've got to tell you guys, I, I think I played the best game of my life in that game. Absolutely incredible. I saved everything. They could, the, 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 the attackers were looking at me, and, and as the game, you could just see their morale drop every time. You know, they were just getting depressed. Every time they got the ball, they didn't know what to do with it. They just kicked it at the end because, you know, I saved everything. But it was still nil or at the, end of the, at the end of the game, so we went into extra time. And at the end of the first half of extra time, again, it was nil or. And, you know, I, I was starting to get just a little bit confident because I thought, these guys are never going to score against me. In the last minutes of the second half of extra time, literally at the dying stages of as far as we could go, the attacker got the ball and he could tell he was fed up. So he just swiped it and miskicked it completely. And this ball came rolling to me. And again, I'm going to uh, claim no ignorance in what happened in that moment. But something happened and I was on the floor and I was watching behind me as this ball rolled into the goal. And the guy couldn't even celebrate. You know, when they score a goal in football, they run around, they throw their shirt up in the air, and they yeah, he was stunned. He just stood there. And everybody else just stood there. And I, I have this recollection of the ball going back and turning my head and seeing this guy kind of look at me going, is that all I had to do? That moment defined my footballing career. Uh, a year later, I was in Italy playing professional football, and I could never let go of that moment. That moment stuck to me 
Uh, a month after that moment, uh, our, our, our team had their uh, annual you know, awards night and all that, and I was named best player of the year. I didn't go. I didn't want the award. I didn't even want to show my face uh, at the place. Um, uh, six months or so later, I was on a plane to Italy after Dad had died, and I started playing football there, and I was playing professionally, but I couldn't get past that moment. Anyone feel that way? Well, you've got that moment in your life where you stuffed up, where you got it wrong, where it didn't work, and you can't let go of it. I had an injury uh, about a couple of years after that, did my lateral um, ligament out. And out of anger and frustration, I threw everything away. Didn't want to play football anymore. Because I felt that I was just being compounded by this negative aspect in my past. That meant really nothing to me today, but I couldn't let go of the shame. How could I have let that goal in and let my team members down? How could I do that? Do we have... Let's go to the Bible. We're going to go to John chapter 8. I'm going to talk to you about another incident where we talk about a shameful act. Jesus was, um, was getting ready. He had been, um, verse starts in verse 2, he says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. Now, Jesus was at the, te- at the Mount of Olives and he decided, oh, I'm going to have an early morning Bible study. Let's go down to the temple and hang out with some of the disciples and some of the people and we'll do some teaching. Now, just to show you where the Mount of Olives is, I'm not sure if this works, nope, it doesn't, but down the bottom here in the right-hand corner, uh, from my, well, your right-hand corner, that's where the Mount of Olives is. Just below that is the Garden of Gethsemane and you see that uh, bridge that goes across? That goes to the Golden Gate and the Golden Gate is the entry into the temple um, on the left there, where you see the building with the kind of beigey, burgundy top, they're the steps that go in, the main entry in there, and Jesus would have taught there. Um, I've got another photo, and that's Monica. Now, unfortunately, it's a bit highlighted, but to the right of Monica, there's a little outcropping there, and that is the Golden Gate, the one that I told you about that comes out. So she's on the Mount of Olives. Right below her are the tombs of... of Jewish uh, burial tombs, because they want to face where the temple will be rebuilt. In front of the uh, Golden Gate there are the Arab tombs, because they want to stop the next Messiah from coming in, to, because a Jew won't walk on, uh, on a burial ground. So it's interesting how you got that aspect. On the left there, on the far left in the corner there, are those steps that you would have seen before uh, of the entryway where Jesus would have taught. So here's Jesus starts up a little Bible study early in the morning. The Mount of Olives would have been a very tranquil place, a very quiet place. He goes down early in the morning. Now, at the same time, in another part of town, a man and a woman are in the throes of passion. Early morning too. And they're in the middle of it. And there's sweat. And there is a lust. And in the middle of all that... Uh, Pride of the climax, bang, door swings open, the bright sunlight comes into the room, robes shouting, 
The man is whisked away. The woman in her nakedness and shame is caught in front of all these guys screaming at her. She tries to grab whatever cotton, cloth, whatever she can to hide her, her, her disheveledness. Imagine being in that situation. How embarrassing is that? How embarrassing. Now all of a sudden all these people are yelling at you, thrown into the streets, trying to cover herself. All of a sudden now, not only are these people who have interrupted a, a very intimate moment, she is now thrown to the jury of Jerusalem and everybody will look at her and the words that will, th- they, that will come to their minds. Disgusting. Shameful. Sinner. As this woman is paraded through the streets, holding on to whatever dignity she had left. Adulterer! And then she's thrown into the middle of a morning Bible study. As he was speaking, Jesus, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They didn't hold on to her, guys. She wasn't in a prison. Jewish law would have stoned her immediately. But they saw an opportunity here to make an example of her and make an example of Jesus. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What law tells tells them to stone her? Whose law? No. Whose law? No, it's God's law. But notice how they make a very big distinction here. They say, the law of... What's the difference between the law of Moses and the law of God? Is there any difference? Why do they make that distinction? Why do they make that distinction? I, I could tell you why. Hmm? That? Yeah, it's actually a good point. Comparing Moses to Jesus? That's it. They lost the heart of God. The words are more important than the heart. Hey, this is the law. She committed adultery. You're shining up their stones. Let's see what Jesus will say now. Huh? And what about the poor woman? Where can she go? How would you feel if you were in her position? Would you have hope? Anyone see people being stoned to death? Do you, do you think that's a pleasant experience? It's got to be awful. It's got to be awful. Who does she turn to? Does she turn to God? You kidding me? His priests are shining up their stones, ready to stone me. Why would I turn to God? Who does she have left? Where does she go? Where does she go? You know what's really interesting? Jesus' response The first thing he does, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his fingers. Huh? 
what, what's that all about? What, 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 really? You see, we today, we lose the imagery, we lose the significance of just this act and what it means. Why? Because today we don't think of stooping. I mean, who, who uses that word today? Do you stoop? I, I don't really use it that much. I'd bend over more than anything else. But stooping, what, what's, what's so big about that? To the Jews, it would have meant quite a lot. The woman thrown down. She's on the floor. Jesus is standing and teaching. And he stoops down. Now what do the Pharisees have to do to see Jesus? They have to look down. They have to look down. Jesus, by stooping to the Jew, would have meant he is putting himself down on her level. And I find it interesting that he starts writing in the dust with his fingers. When was the last time that God mixed his hands in the dirt? What did he create? Humanity with the dirt. It's funny how he could have used gold or silver. No, he used dirt. And there's Jesus putting his hands back into the dirt. I don't know what he would have been thinking. Then I could try and surmise, my gosh, what have I created? (laughs) He might be thinking, or remember when you were this. Remember that you are dust. But he starts writing with his finger in the dust. He's down on her level. They have to look down on her. But you know what? They can't get over it. They keep demanding an answer. Jesus, give us an answer. Come on, get, get up, get up. Come on. What are you doing down there? Give me an answer here. So what does he do? He stands up. He stands back up. Does he stand up to preach? Does he stand up to point fingers and and declare? He doesn't even get a soapbox or anything, but he says something very simple. He said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then guess what he did again? He went straight back down and again wrote in the dust. Jesus has a tendency to stoop. When Peter was sinking in the waves, he stooped down to pull him up. When the Last Supper, he stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. He would have stooped down so that they could whip him. He would have stooped so that he could carry the cross. Jesus has a tendency of stooping. So much for a grand Messiah who's supposed to enter through the golden gates. We believe in a God that stoops. And it's in that stooping that grace is found. It's in the stooping, getting down into the dirt on her level. She deserved to be punished. That was the law. she, She was wrong, right? It doesn't matter what everybody else does. I mean, this is our logic. This is the way we think. She messed up. Don't bring my mess into the middle of this. It's got nothing to do with it. She got it wrong. She should be punished. But Jesus says, actually, your mess is just as bad. Don't don't separate things. Don't block them off. Don't, don't, Don't set them apart. Your mess is just as bad. 
And in fact, you know what? I'm not even going to stand on this. I'm going to go down to her. I'm going to go down to her. Stooping. And then Jesus, when the accusers heard this, (laughs) talk about conviction, huh? They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Generally, those of us with a bit more experience realize, (laughs) yeah, uh, he's got a good point. And then the younger ones slowly realize, yeah, maybe it'll take a little bit longer to kind of understand it. But anyway, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. The stones are all dropped. It's gone. It's just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus says to the woman, now it's just them two, he stands up. Now it's just him and her, he stands up and he says, where are your accusers? Where are they? Where are your accusers? What a question. What a question. The theology in that alone, I could preach just on that one comment. Where are your accusers? What is Satan called? What do the Jews call Satan? He is the accuser. Do you know that? In the Old Testament, the only description of Satan isn't the devil or or, uh, any other term that we might use today. It was the accuser. That's it. He was known as the accuser. The accuser. Hmm. What does the accuser say? You're not good enough. You're a failure. You're hopeless. And how much does that eat away at us? My football career went down the tubes because I couldn't get past the fact that no matter how good I thought I was, I was a failure. And how many of you today are hearing the accuser in your mind? You're a failure. You're a sinner. Disgusting. Oh. How many are we hearing that today? Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 to 10. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a voice, a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Satan, to that point, his career was to accuse humanity. You go through the Old Testament and you read about Satan, he's always accusing humanity. In Zechariah, then he showed up, showed me Joshua, Joshua who was coming back with the remnant, back to Babylon, after Babylon, back to Jerusalem. He was the high priest. He comes back and he says this, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing 
at the right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Have I not saved this man who was doomed? I have saved him. And Satan can only see the negative. Where is Satan standing, by the way? Where is he standing? On the right side. Interesting. How is it that Satan is standing at the right side? The right side. We read here in Revelation, taking a step back in verse 10, that at the time Jesus, and I believe this happened, at the time Jesus conquered death, he displaced Satan, and Satan was hurled down. And then when you read in Mark, that after the Lord had spoken to him, he was taken up into hand, he sat what side? So what happens to the accuser? He's gone and he is placed with an advocate, Jesus. Amen. You know one of our biggest problems as Christians? Guess who's replaced the accuser? In the world's eyes, we have become the accusers, ready to point out all the things that will ruin society. All the things, let's point them out. Evil, evil, disgusting sin. Oh, yeah. We're playing straight into Satan's game. When you start to accuse, when you start to stand high, and when you drag sin out in the middle of the street and parade it for all to see, pointing the finger, you are playing into Satan's game. Because Satan is the accuser. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Oh, I've got John 10 up there, sorry. There we go. Jesus through the Holy Spirit brings repentance, right? Restoration. Satan brings regret. Satan brings regret. Who has regret here? You'd be lying if you didn't. I was 15 years old, 16 years old when that ball scooped under me and went into the goal. I'm 41 this year. You'd think I'd get over it, right? I've made some poor decisions, even in our married life, up until yesterday, that I regret. Satan is about regret. Jesus is about restoration. All the other R words, restoration, renewal, redeemed. Oh, yeah. Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life 
and have it to the full. full. Steal your peace, kill your dreams, destroy your future. How many of you live in the past? How many of you tied down by the weight of bad decisions? Max Lucado wrote this, he said, Condemnation is the preferred commodity of Satan. He just wants you to feel absolutely rotten so that you cannot take a proper step forward. He wants you to feel rotten. Satan will repeat that scenario in your mind. Just like that poor woman whose sin was dragged out, made a fool of, the dignity thrown out, paraded in the streets. Satan would want you to relive that moment every day of your life. But what you forget is you've got a redeemer, Jesus Christ, who will stoop down, who will get down. He will stoop so far down as to be buried in a tomb. So far down for you. And then as that uh, hymn up from the grave, he rose. And as he rises, So do we. So do we. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You know what that means? That who you are, God doesn't see. He sees Jesus. Do you know that? He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus in you. And since we have a great high priest over our house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What I want to ask you is, why do we give ear to Satan? Why, why do we let him pull us down? Why? Because we feel it's true? Yeah, some of us really do feel it's true. We're used to that kind of talk. Wow, that's true too. Why do we give ear to him? We feel guilty. Uh, just on that, on that note there. God uses guilt to change us. Satan uses guilt to enslave us. I had to write that one down. God uses guilt to change us. Satan uses guilt to enslave us. Guilt's not a bad thing. I I, I acknowledge my wrongs. What am I going to do about it? 
Satan wants me stuck in the mire. He wants me stuck in that, that mud so the wheel just spins around and around. We were with some friends over at, um, at uh, oh, what's that beach? Birdling's Flat. And there's a road path, and, and we thought we'd get as close to the water as we can. But who, who's been to Birdling's Flat? That's full of stones, isn't it? You know? and, but you see the tyre tracks, and, and you know, we just assumed that we could drive the car that far. Well, we drove the car that far, and all of a sudden, we got stuck. So me and, 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 and the guy who was driving, who's in this church, and I won't mention his name, we got out, oh, I just said, just gun it, you know, hit the accelerator and we'll, we'll get out. But no, it just actually kicked all these stones up and he got deeper and deeper in. And of course, the ladies were like, we need to push, we need to do this. No, 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 we guys have got it. Of course, the ladies were right. And after a bit of time, we finally got out. But the damage it caused, <laughs> those stones, I think, were rattling that car for the next three weeks. Um, but we get caught, it's still rattling. <laughs> we get caught and that's where... Satan wants us. That's where Satan wants us to be, spinning wheels and not going anywhere. Spinning wheels and going nowhere. Who's read um, Victor Hugo's uh, Les Miserables? Anyone read that? Oh, you uncultured people. I don't know. Oh. You've seen the movie? <laughs> oh, I haven't seen the movie yet, but um, for those of you who, well, there's none of you that have read it, but <laughs> for those of you who have seen the movie, it talks, there's a scene about this, this guy. His name's Jean Valjean, and um, he's, 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 he's put in prison for stealing food. He spends 19 years in a French prison. This is at the time of, just after the French Revolution. And uh, what happens when you get thrown into prison is your, your identity card gets stamped with a yellow stamp, to identify you as a criminal. And so when he's released finally from prison in southeast France, he's, he's released out into the Alpine wilderness, he goes from village to village with his ident card trying to find food, shelter, work, and everybody shuts the door on him. They see his identity card, they don't want to have anything to do with him, they don't trust him, they don't want him. Finally, he walks into this small village and he sees a bishop's house. The bishop is Bishop Miriel. He's, he's 75 years old. He's lost everything from, uh, because of the revolution. And all he's got left of value in his home are his silverware, two silver candlesticks and a soup ladle, a silver soup ladle. Um, Jean Valjean goes up and knocks on the door and gives him the same story he's telling everybody. And, and the bishop looks at him and goes, you don't need to tell me your story. Come on in. This is not my house. This is the house of Jesus. And he brings him in, lays out the silverware, feeds him, sets up a big fire, and then turns his bed and sets it up. And he says, Jean, go, go get some rest. And Valjean, while he's in bed, he's, he's rustling, he's, 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 he's confused, he's conflicted, he's thinking of the silverware. How much money can that get me? I could go far with that. I could sell it and make some money and get myself sorted out. And he tussles with himself. He's, he's got all these things he's had. Finally, he gives in. And in the middle of the night, he jumps down, grabs the silverware and runs out into the darkness of night. The next morning, he gets pulled over by a police officer who looks and sees the silverware and recognizes it as the bishop. 
He goes, you're arrested. You're going back to jail. And Valéjean just, you know, those of you who read the book, none of you, but anyway, you, you can almost feel the tension. The poor guy, he's caught. He's got nowhere to go. And not only that, they're going to humiliate him by taking him back to the bishop's house and return the silverware. And he's thinking, oh, I've, you know, this, this guy has just given me food and refuge where no one else would, and I've just stolen all his goods, and how can I go back and face him? And they go and they knock on the door, and Midio comes and opens the door, and he sees the police officer, and he sees Valéjean, and, and he goes, oh, Valéjean, where did you ran off, you forgot the candlesticks, and you forgot the soup ladle. I told you to take it all. And the police officer's looking at him, stunned, he goes, you didn't steal this? No. No, no, I gave it to him. I gave it to him. And the police officer walks away, scratching his head, and Valjean is stunned. Stunned. And the priest goes back, gets the, the candlesticks and the soup ladle, and he hands it over. And I, I wrote it down because I've got to tell you this. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. You belong to good. I have bought your soul from you. I take it back from evil thoughts and deeds and the spirit of hell and I give it to God. The power of redemption. And Valéjean goes on to become a mayor of a small town, builds a factory, gives work to the poor. A dying mother's request, he takes pity and, and raises her baby girl as his own that moment in his life where he changed. Where grace came in and took hold and didn't condemn him. Didn't point the finger and say, disgusting, evil, sinner. No, just looked at him in the face and said, I love you. I love you. Now go, don't do any more wrong. I've bought you. And every one of you in this room has been bought. Every one of you have been bought here. And Jesus stands and he looks at you straight in the eye and he says, I have bought you. You belong to God. Jesus so loved the world so that everyone, not the select few, not just the little bits, but everyone, he died for all of us. Where are your accusers? Where are they? I want to ask us, are we a church known as accusers? Are we? Because the world thinks of Christianity as accusers. We're not. We're not. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know what's right. I have saved you this morning. That was the best Bible lesson any of his disciples could have had sit there and study scriptures and we miss 
the point. Sit there and, and know everything there is to know about the Bible and miss. Become like Pharisees where we're ready to point the finger. Sin. Evil. And Jesus is like, hey, drop your stones. Drop your stones. This is what grace is all about. I've always wondered what Jesus was writing in the sand. I've always wondered. Max Lugato gives his view. And as he says, as Jesus got up and left, what was left in that dirt was a simple statement, grace happened here. Amen to that, huh? Grace happened here. How many of you are struggling with the lies of the accuser? How many of you are struggling, allowing him to regurgitate all the past? And some of you are using that past to hurt others today. How many of you are allowing that to dictate who you are? There's another way. There's someone who won't accuse you. There is someone who will stoop down if need be. Who will lift you up. And will we'll, we'll plant grace on your heart. His name's Jesus. Don't listen to Satan. God's not interested in your past. He's not interested in the walk that you've walked. He's interested in the walk you will walk. He's interested in what's happening tomorrow. Because we are linear beings, we're only going forward. We're only going forward. Grace happened here. Amen.